everybody. Welcome back to another podcast. This one's going to be another quick one. I'm currently in Sweden and recently there's been a couple of developments in the so-called evidence-based fitness community where uh, there was a big to-do about this sort of traditional back squat versus hip thrust study that came out. And uh, if you don't know who Brett Contreras is, he's the glute guy. He runs uh, something called the Glute Lab, but essentially he's done a lot of research on glute training. He popularized hip thrusts uh, more broadly in the fitness community and created a few sort of gadgets to capitalize on that. Anyway, I don't really follow Brett's work very much on online. I just don't find it that interesting to be perfectly honest, and I don't know how he normally interacts with people online, but he was given a spot in uh, Alan Aragon's research review to rebut or I suppose, yeah, I suppose it was a rebuttal, rebut this, uh, this study looking at whether back squats were superior or if not at least equal to hip thrusts for glute hypertrophy. Um, now, in general, squats are a great glute exercise, so it's unsurprising to sort of see that you might get better results or at least similar results from squatting versus hip thrusting. And of course, you know, I'm not going to go too much into the study, but you can always just do both. Now, one of the things that Brett did was he resorted to a logical fallacy to kind of support his case. He actually accused the author of the study, the lead author of being too skinny for his opinion to even count. Uh, I'm actually going to find a direct quote so that I can read it to you so you don't have to go searching for it. Just give me one moment. Okay, so here it is. This is a direct quote from the Alan Aragon Research Review in which Brett Contreras was talking about this study. Quote, Now, I don't mean to sound petty, but this is important to me. Other trainers and lifters feel the same way. We don't even know if Barbalio this is the lead author of the study, even lifts. I don't know if he's ever trained a single person in real life. I don't know if he's certified. I don't know if he's spent time in a gym. Here's an image of him below, and here is his Instagram account, end quote. Now, he's linked his Instagram account. He's put a picture of uh, the lead researcher with the title of the image being World's Greatest Powerlifting Coach. So this is a clear ad hominem attack, which is pretty, pretty bad. It is kind of the number one thing, the number one logical fallacy that we try and avoid in any scientific or evidence-based discourse. So an ad hominem is committed by attacking the person who's making an argument rather than the argument itself. And there's a couple of different types of ad hominems you can have. You can have one of the most common fallacies, which is called an abusive ad hominem, which is a direct attack on a person's character rather than focusing on the argument itself. And so this would be uh, an abusive ad hominem in which Brett is essentially saying, does this guy even lift, which is completely irrelevant to whether his research is any good. It's completely irrelevant to whether he is a knowledgeable man or not, or whether uh, Brett's argument is correct or not. Uh, you know, there've been plenty of ad hominems dealt against many people in the fitness industry, including Brett himself, which I'm sure he has taken much uh, exception to. You can also get a circumstantial ad hominem, which is quite common in the fitness industry, where the, uh, the opposing speaker, uh, the person on the opposite side of your viewpoint, is accused of having vested interests. So you might say, well, you know, this study was sponsored by 
the dairy industry or whatever, and therefore the data can't be trusted. Now, that is something that you do need to take into account. An example in this case would be that Brett Contreras happens to sell uh, machinery and equipment that is specifically for hip thrusts in the glute training. Uh, and so he has a vested interest in ensuring that the hip thrust is seen as the best way to grow your glutes. However, that doesn't negate his argument. It doesn't negate any data that comes out that might support uh, hip thrusts for glute training. And so we can't use this ad hominem against him to discount all of his arguments in the same way that he cannot use the abusive ad hominem against the lead author of this study, Barbalio. Uh, you know, the, the research itself was actually quite well done from my perspective. And uh, it's a bit ridiculous to see someone come out and essentially throw away any credibility they have in this argument by using such a basic uh, ad hominem attack, this logical fallacy that is super common in the fitness industry. And unfortunately, it's something that we've all kind of suffered from and we don't like happening. So with that said, I actually wanted to make this podcast a bit more about some other common logical fallacies that you might see in the fitness industry in particular that I've seen quite a lot of. There are tons of logical fallacies out there and it can be a little bit overwhelming trying to wrap your head around all of them and what all the names are. Uh, I suppose I'll start by just defining a logical fallacy. It's essentially just an error in logic. So when we're trying to um, argue for a point and we're trying to draw conclusions from evidence, Logical errors can often occur and then we improperly use this evidence or we incorrectly connect evidence together to try and draw a conclusion. Now, we're not really concerned about the truthfulness of individual premises uh, or individual pieces of evidence uh, per se. We're really concerned about the use uh, and relationship of these statements. So um, that's really the main thrust of it. It's just whether we're making an error in logic or not, regardless of the actual evidence involved. Now, something that I want to move on to after the ad hominem, which is super, super common, is the common sense fallacy. And this one is really pervasive in health and fitness in the broader general public. So, uh, you know, an argument is said to be true because of these sort of practical truths that everybody knows. Like, um, you know, we all know that eating carbs after dinner is not healthy and it's going to cause fat gain. And of course, that doesn't give you any evidence whatsoever as to whether the the statement is true or not. It's just a sort of common sense thing. And there's a lot of this that goes around. I often get clients that come in and say, oh, you know, I cut out carbs or um, I started doing cardio because that's what burns fat or whatever. There's a lot of things that they take for granted that they've never thought to question that is common knowledge amongst the general population. And this rears its head quite often on many posts that I make. So to give you an example of one of the posts I made that caused quite a stir, it was the one about how lifting weights doesn't burn as many calories as doing cardio for the same amount of time put in per session. And that lifting weights actually burns quite not that many calories. And of course, there was a lot of pushback from people because it really challenged everybody's sense of what was intuitively correct because weight training is obviously very difficult it's very fatiguing and if you lift weights for an hour you often come out of that feeling completely spent um, you're sore you feel tired for like a day or two afterwards whereas if you did a similar amount of cardio you might not feel it quite as much you do understand that yes i'm burning some calories here but that weight training really took it out of me and so i must have burned quite a lot of calories when in reality the amount of time you spend contracting your muscles is actually not that big and the data that we have from multiple studies shows 
that you don't burn that many calories. And so it's quite surprising to people. It challenges their, their common sense. Uh, however, you have to look at the data and a lot of people just couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that this was true. Now, I challenged my own personal beliefs as well, my own personal concept of what was you know, common knowledge that everybody knew. But at the end of the day, you have to try and put aside this common sense fallacy and try and just look at objectively what the data is telling us. There's really no way you can argue with the numbers, unfortunately. So that's really a really, really common one in the fitness industry that you have to look out for. And you have to look out for it, not only in other people, but for yourself. And this kind of is true for all of these logical fallacies. You'll find yourself making um, a, a an illogical statement or committing logical fallacies really often. Like I do it all the time. Everybody does it all the time. Even if you're actively trying to avoid it, you still do it. And, uh, and so you just need to kind of remain um, pretty aware of, of yourself and, and what you're trying to say and whether it is in fact logical or not. Okay, so the next fallacy that I wanna talk about is the fallacy of a loaded question. And this is like a typical uh, keyboard warrior tactic to use, um, you know, so how long did it take for you to come up with that excuse for misreading the study? Like, it's just assuming that you've misread the study. Uh, and so this one is a loaded question. You're assuming something and asking the question based on that assumption. And of course, you're not addressing the issue at hand. So it's really uh, common to see it's quite an aggressive way of questioning somebody. And you see this pretty often in sort of Facebook discussions or sometimes on Instagram comments with people who are really sure that they're right. Another um, one that like I sort of saw a little bit was, uh, you know, how much did the uh, dairy industry pay you to write this positive review on dairy or whatever it is that happens quite a lot um, from conspiracy theorists on the internet for some reason. So that's another common one. Uh, it's, generally from people who are pretty dim-witted who use that sort of thing, I gotta say. Now, continuing on with the theme from the hip thrust study, there is something called a false dilemma, which is another logical fallacy, which is essentially just leaving you with two options. It's either A or it's either B, um, and there's no middle ground. And this is also super, super, super common in the fitness industry. And of course, anything related to health, we have so much going on. There are so many different variables. There's so many different ways you can do things. There's so much context involved that almost everything is a black and is not black and white. There's, there's gray in between. And we all kind of understand that from a logical perspective, but it's this weird cognitive bias that we all have where we tend not to think about that immediately when we're looking at things. And often the way that people present information online is to give you a sort of either or, or. Uh, people kind of just want an answer for something that is clear and easy to implement. And I can understand that. Uh, and unfortunately, when you're creating content, you are rewarded for doing that kind of thing. Because if you do something that is a little bit controversial, or if you make a bold statement or a really clear, simple point, then people tend to interact with that and they tend to appreciate that because it's something that is either actionable or it's just something that they can easily follow or understand. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that I put out personally, I try and give a bit more nuance to, but it's very difficult to do in a short format on Instagram or without knowing the specific context of whoever might be reading or listening to your content. Uh, but it's pretty uh, common that you'll have this sort of either or uh, false dilemma happening there. So essentially it just reduces your alternatives into like one or the other option. And in the case of the hip thrust study or the hip thrust debate, it's like, well, are squats better or are 
hip thrust better. And of course the research kind of needs to be framed that way, but in reality, you can do both of them. You could do neither of them. You could do one for a bit and then you could do the other one. It really depends on what you want to do, what you enjoy, a whole bunch of different things. And so um, sometimes this argument becomes a little bit convoluted because at the end of the day, is there that much in it? Like maybe you're going to be squatting anyway for your quad growth. And so you end up getting a little bit of glutes on top of that. Maybe the hip thrusts just feel really good and you like doing them. So you're going to do them anyway. There's a whole bunch of stuff you need to consider. And of course, it's, an, it's not an either or proposition. That doesn't make the research useless. It doesn't make the research question stupid or impractical. It's still very useful information. But when we're trying to translate that into the real world, we obviously have to look at the shades of gray and the context around it. And that is true for anything in the fitness industry. Uh, unfortunately, people tend to temporarily lose sight of that sometimes when they're reading posts. It's very difficult to explain or to translate those shades of gray when you're making content, especially in a short form like Instagram, for example. Now here is one that drives me nuts because it is often employed by trolls or people who have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, and this is ignoring the burden of proof. So anytime you make a claim, you must provide proof for that claim. If you make any kind of assertion, you need to provide proof for that assertion. So you can't just say, yeah, unicorns exist. Well, prove me wrong because no one can prove you wrong. They just don't exist. You have to provide proof that there is existence of unicorns if you're going to make that sort of statement. Now, that's an extreme example that just demonstrates how this is used, but it's it's used all the time. And if I find anybody in my Instagram comments making statements without providing evidence like that, it's clearly someone who is not willing to enter into a debate, into um, trying to educate other people. If you genuinely have a different point of view or if you have evidence that goes against something that somebody says, then you should provide it and you can have a healthy debate over that. You can go back and forth on it. You can maybe educate each other. Maybe one of you will change your mind, uh, maybe not, but either way, it's very helpful to, to engage in that kind of back and forth while providing evidence. What you can't do is to make claims and then provide no evidence for those claims because you can't move forward that way. And so you find quite a lot of this on the internet. Again, I had this happen a lot when I made some posts about how uh, the research by and large uh, quite convincingly shows that on average, dairy consumption tends to have an overall healthy effect on people's body weight, uh, on inflammatory markers, on that kind of, on cardiovascular health. Um, now, a lot of people chime in and they say, that it doesn't for whatever reason and they never provide any evidence and i've had to block a few people from commenting because they won't leave it alone and they won't provide evidence i'm not interested in engaging someone if they're not willing to provide evidence for their views because i go to great effort to great lengths to provide evidence for my views and if i don't have evidence then i actually say this is my opinion uh, which most people who are arguing on the internet don't do. So ignoring the burden of proof is a really big thing. If you're going to make a claim, you've got to provide evidence for it. It's pretty simple. Kind of tied in with this one is uh, what's sometimes called the red herring or moving the goalposts. And this is essentially where you try to avoid the main argument by using diversionary tactics or changing what you're arguing about. Uh, this is also super common. If you look like you're not really going to provide enough evidence or you're kind of getting your ass handed to you online, then people tend to just start to use diversionary tactics. They tend to nitpick about small uh, pieces of the argument or they tend to move the goalposts. Oh, I didn't say that. I actually meant this. 
Uh, oh, but what about in this situation? Um, and so this is very common as well, the red herring. You have to make sure that what you're actually talking about is understood by both sides. Now, sometimes this happens on accident where people start to argue over something or maybe not argue, but debate over something. And it is sort of entered into in good faith by both parties, but you just kind of miss each other in terms of what you're actually talking about. And so I find it's really helpful if you're ever discussing something with somebody, whether it's online or not, to just clarify the other person's viewpoint and what they're actually saying before you address it. So if someone makes some kind of claim, um, it's really helpful to repeat that back to them and ask if you're getting it right. And if they say, no, this is actually what I meant, then you've got a solid foundation to move forward and actually have a healthy debate or a healthy discussion about something. Now, sometimes people will continually move the goalposts when you do this, and then you understand that they don't actually really know what they're talking about. They're not really sure of what their position is. And sometimes if they're good natured and they're going into a discussion with good faith, then they'll actually realize that and they'll say, actually, I'm not really sure what my position is. I need to refine it a bit more before I enter into a debate about this or something. Um, that's happened to me a couple of times. Uh, but generally speaking, if you just make sure that you understand what the other person is saying, then it can be really helpful. Now, it also relies on the other person doing the same back to you. Um, and so it can be a frustrating experience when you're making a genuine effort to understand where somebody's coming from and what their viewpoint is, and then they are arguing against something that you're not saying. Um, but you got to be very clear about what your actual position on something is and what you're trying to, uh, what you're actually trying to argue. In many cases, what's happened in the industry is people seem to differ on points. And then when they actually get into some kind of a discussion on a podcast or a YouTube roundtable or something like that, you tend to find that they agree on most things. And they may be some small points about a certain topic, whether it's like training volume or how many carbs to eat or how to progress training or whatever it is. Um, they might disagree on some small points or they might have some interesting different ways of taking it that's maybe neither wrong nor right. It's just kind of an experience thing based on the evidence that we have. Uh, but most of the time when you actually clarify people's arguments, you tend to find that you often agree with people more often than not, which is quite an interesting thing. Um, and you might just sort of have a quibble about a small piece of the argument, which then means that you're kind of mostly on the same page and you can kind of remain friends. Uh, but there might be something small that you need to think about or refine a bit more. This sort of red herring is quite similar to the straw man, which you've probably heard of, which is where you just misrepresent somebody's position so that it's easier to argue against them. Um, so if I say red herring or straw man, I'm not sure which terminology is perfect to apply here, but they're quite similar in terms of committing logical fallacies. Now, I probably won't carry on too much more, but one that I definitely need to touch is uh, a relevance fallacy. Um, so a fallacy of relevance is an argument in which the premises do not bear upon the drawn arguments, even though they may appear to do so. So it kind of makes them irrelevant. Essentially, um, you're appealing to something like authority. So appeal to authority is a really, really common one in the fitness industry. And if we look at uh, hierarchies of evidence, you know, um, expert opinion, like my opinion, for example, um, or someone else's opinion in the fitness industry who has spent a lot of time researching or has a lot of experience certainly counts. It's certainly a form of evidence. However, it doesn't automatically make them correct. So there are plenty of medical doctors, for example, who have written books that are not scientifically supported or not representative of the overall medical community. Um, a really good example is a few people like uh, Gary Taubes, who is a very intelligent man 
went to some prestigious schools, done a lot of research, had a lot of backing, and he wrote books that essentially demonized carbohydrates as being the main driver of the obesity crisis. Um, a lot of people will reference him. They'll reference other doctors in the area. Not that he's a doctor. Uh, they'll reference doctors in the area. They'll reference people with PhDs, researchers who may also have that kind of bias or that viewpoint, but it's not representative of the overall evidence. Some other examples are people who claim that various things are going to help cure cancer and they may, may hold a tertiary degree that is quite impressive. Other people have written books like... Uh, you know, a good example for me is David Perlmutter, who wrote Wheat Belly and Grain Brain, uh, essentially claiming that grains and specifically gluten is highly inflammatory for everybody and causes a whole bunch of issues, which is simply not representative of the current current evidence. Now, if there was a an argument in those in that book, for example, using that as a specific example, where there was a, a nuanced argument to it, that's kind of a different story, but it tends to be a bit sensationalist and it's not representative of the wider scientific evidence. So just because those people have uh, a medical doctorate, uh, a PhD, uh, they are a researcher, they're experienced, they are a pro bodybuilder, they're a successful trainer, whatever, if they've got something right before, they could have gotten 99 things correct and they might just get one thing incorrect. You can never ever appeal to authority just because someone has uh, a degree or has experience, they're not automatically correct. Now, they are still a reasonable form of evidence. Expert opinion is still a reasonable form of evidence. However, you have to take the entire body of evidence into consideration. You have to evaluate each argument on its own. Uh, and so that's something that is really, really important whenever you are consuming information. There are tons of people that I follow that I mostly agree with, but I disagree on some things. And generally, if they wrote something, I would say, look, most of the time I'm going to trust that it's correct. However, you can't assume that everything they write is correct. You can't assume that everything they say or believe is 100% correct. Uh, and so I'd really encourage you to bear that in mind moving forward, uh, whether it's my own content or anybody else's, they can certainly be uh, right about some things and wrong about others. And it doesn't automatically make them correct simply because they are an authority. There are various uh, types of relevance fallacies. That one is probably the biggest one that most people know. Another one would be something like, I think it's been called the naturalistic fallacy, but I'm not sure if that's really the correct term. Just that something that is closer to its natural form um, tends to be healthier. That's not necessarily true. Um, it may be a good heuristic to follow in general, but you have to evaluate everything on a case-by-case -case basis and you have to catch yourself if you have that sort of cognitive bias. We tend to you know, have that, that sort of bug in our software where we, we expect that people who are experts will be correct, you can trust them. We tend to feel that if someone's wearing a lab coat, you can trust them, or if they're older and have more time in the industry, you can trust them, or if something is grown naturally or organic that we can trust that it's healthier for us. And that's not necessarily true. It might be true in 90% of cases even, um, but it might it's not true all the time. So we can't have these relevance fallacies uh, bugging our thinking, so to speak. Okay, uh, I've been jabbering on for over 20 minutes now, so I'm gonna stop there. There are plenty more logical fallacies, but those are some of the main ones that I see in the fitness industry. So I hope that's kind of been a bit interesting to you and a bit helpful, but certainly just to kind of wrap it up with this Brett Contreras thing. Unfortunately, that ad hominem attack on Barbalio, the lead author of this squat versus hip thrust study was incredibly unprofessional. 
uh, it's sort of grade level logical fallacy. Uh, it's really something that everybody should be aware of. It's quite an easy logical fallacy to avoid. And unfortunately, uh, I don't understand how, firstly, Brett even decided to write that. I don't understand how Alan Aragon decided to put it in his research review. I don't understand how that made it past editing. And of course, the evidence-based community as a whole has kind of denounced that kind of um, that action. I still think you need to evaluate Brett's arguments on the strength of the argument itself and not uh, simply throw everything Brett's ever done under the bus or discount his argument because he has committed the ad hominem attack, but it certainly does make you think twice when you're reading some of his stuff. Uh, however, you know, we do have to still remain logical and evaluate each argument on its own strength. Anyway, I uh, hope you have enjoyed this episode and I'll catch you in the next one. Thank you.